love of God for his creation is evidenced in the world around us. He does so powerfully in how he interacts with us and the links he has gone to show us. But what we tend to forget is that we are to show the same kind of love to others. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich talks about the relational way we demonstrate the love of God to others. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, How We Show the Love of God, from 1 John chapter 3. All right, well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we open up his word, see what he has to say to us. As I said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, reading verses 16 through 21. 16 through 21. <clears throat> Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence toward God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, that we have had this opportunity to freely come to your house, to praise you, to worship you, to lift our petitions before you, Lord. It is truly a blessing, an honor, a privilege uh, to be able to do so, and you are an awesome and a mighty God, Lord, that you are uh, willing to help us participate in such a thing. And Lord, now as we decide, uh, this, are moving forward to step into your word, Lord, we just ask that you help us prepare our hearts in our minds, that we might be open and receptive to those words that you want us to hear. Help us to take the words we hear today, the truths that you have for us, and let us let them take root and bear fruit in our lives, that we might glorify you in doing so. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here today. I just ask that you take me and use me as your instrument. Take away anything that can in any way interfere with the message. Pride, distraction, selfishness, whatever it might be, Lord, just take it, remove it, fill me with your spirit, that I might speak only the words that you've laid upon my heart. And Lord, <clears throat> as a church, help us to continue to strive to move forward, to look for your purposes and your will, that we might follow the lead that you have given us and follow the, the path that you've laid out so that we might fulfill the purposes for which we were called. And Lord, as individuals, help us to strive to, uh, to be the, the servants that you've called us to be. Help us to see opportunities to share the gospel. And Lord, this morning we just offer a special prayer for the situation in Israel. Lord, be with the Israelites, be with those folks, and uh, help this conflict be resolved according to your purposes and your glory. And Lord, forgive us of our sins, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The, picture, uh, the verses we read this morning uh, paint for us actually a, a very, uh, kind of a beautiful flow. It, it tells us <clears throat> that when we love others just as Jesus loves us, that we can be assured that we are in the truth. We are doing that which God would have us to do. And when you think about it, the greatest example that we have ever seen of how to love has already been provided for us in great detail. It was expressed in a lowly baby in a manger being born 
in a stall for an animal, though he was king of kings. It was expressed itself as a man who refused to judge a person based on their appearance, their reputation, and even showing grace for wrong actions when repentance was present. It's expressed in a man who refused to respond to false accusations and abuse. And then ultimately it expressed itself in a man who willingly gave his own life to spare the lives of untold billions of others, if not trillions. You see, Jesus' life is a picture of God's love and his love for us. You know, so many times in sermons and uh, in Sunday school lessons and Bible studies, we hear how God loves us and how He show God's loves, or how He loves, shows He loves us. And really, there's no disputing the fact that He does. It is painfully obvious in everything we see around us how much God loves us. We see it in the world that He created for us, a world that was originally created perfect, providing for all our needs all of our sustenance, a world that was initially created in harmony, in peace. We see it in the way he even created us. We are perfectly fitted together to function and even thrive in this world that he created. Have you ever thought about the complexities of the human body and how everything seems to work just right together? Everything works in harmony. Well, for most of us at least. Sometimes we have a little out of sync. But everything works in harmony to allow us to, to conduct our day-to-day -day activities, to have the strength to do what we need to do, to, to, to function in this world that we live in. He created us with strength, intelligence, and emotion. And when that is properly channeled and exploited, those can do incredible things. We've seen humans accomplish some incredible things that God has provided us the abilities to do. But we most of all see the love of God every time we look upon the cross of Calvary. God loves us. He's not afraid to show us he loves us. And he wants to show us he loves us. But the love he shows us is not just for us to enjoy and soak up and keep all to ourselves. We are not to be selfish with the love of God. Yes, we are to certainly enjoy it. But it is not us to be selfish for us to be selfish with. The Bible teaches us we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in doing so, we are to reflect that love that is shown towards us. We are to reflect the love of God to the world around us. We are to be mirrors in, in effect showing the very same things that God is showing us. When people see us act and respond to others, not like the world would expect us to act, but rather unlike the world and like God, the dramatic contrast that results makes people take notice. Now, I can assure you that, especially if you are a professing Christian, and may make people know that you are a professing Christian, people are watching us. People are watching how we respond, watching how we react, watching how we act in certain circumstances. But that dramatic contrast, when we don't act like the world, don't act like the world would expect us to, 
makes people take notice. And not so much about us, but it can generate a curiosity about God, the God that we emulate when we act that way. And by showing God's love to the world, we demonstrate that God's love has three key components to it. It is indiscriminating, it is unconditional, and it is unmerited. So how do we do that? How do we take this love of God, this picture that we have so perfectly demonstrated for us through Scripture and in the life of Jesus Christ himself, and how do we show that towards others? How do we show and flip that? How do we show through our lives that God's love is all those things? Well, let's take a look exactly what it means to do and to be those three things. And in doing so, hopefully we will have a greater understanding for what, how we reflect God's love. And the first one I talked about is that it is indiscriminating. In other words, the love of God is evident in us through our perception of other people. The love of God is evident in us through our perception of other people. You know, there's a lot of said throughout scripture about our relationships with others. There are many, many different pictures that are given in scriptures as examples of what to be like and what not to be like when it comes to our interactions and our relationships with other people. In verse 17 of our passage this morning, we see that our love for others can be very, very powerfully demonstrated in how we respond to somebody who is in need. Now, everybody knows the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure even the younger kids in, this, in, the, in, the, in the congregation today have heard the story of the Good Samaritan, how the, the, Samarit, or the uh, gentleman was beaten and robbed and left along the side of the road. And two different religious figures walked by, saw him, and did not do anything to offer help. And yet a Samaritan, somebody who was in contrast, or was in, uh, unliked by the Israelites, was willing to stop, not only stop and render aid, but put him up in a hotel, offered to pay the expenses for his treatment, and said, if it comes to more, then I'll be back to pay the difference. This is the story which we hear and we often relate to how we should treat others. It is a powerful message and how sometimes we can get caught up in the pride of whom we serve and begin thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. Because that religious figures that, that walked by represent sometimes that we feel like we are elevated in some sense that we don't have to necessarily deal with certain circumstances or always render aid when it is brought to our attention. Now we've talked about this before and Paul, we discussed how Paul in the book of Romans had to say about this very kind of mindset but in not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to given that the grace of God is freely offered to all men. So when we see this, we see that we don't ever look down on somebody in any way, shape, or form, or for whatever reason, whether, whatever their circumstances might be. Because, but by the grace of God, that could be us. We've always got to remember that. But by the grace of God, that could be us. <clears throat> but what is most important 
is that we don't just perceive the story of the Good Samaritan to mean that we should only help our brothers and sisters when, we have, when they have suffered some tragic circumstance, when they've befallen some situation that has really put them in a very big disadvantage. Now, we certainly should look out for our brethren in Christ. Because after all, we see that Jesus said in Mark 9.41, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, that he shall not lose his reward. But the reality is that our responsibility goes well beyond just our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how do we know that? Well, first of all, let's examine a challenge that was made by Jesus himself to the Pharisees about the commandments. And I love this because it lays it out so plainly for us. And we find that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 through 40, where it says, Then one of them which was a lawyer, <laughs> gotta love the lawyers, always wanting to challenge and, and, and confuse, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And there it is in black and white. Just as clear as day for us. The number two commandment tells us that we should love thy neighbor, we should love thy neighbor as just as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Think about that. What does that say about how much we should love our neighbor? What does that say about how strongly we should love our neighbor? When it is related to how much we love ourselves. And what's more, let's take a look and step back a little bit into these verses. It tells us that the first commandment is to love the God, or love our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. But it says that the second one is like unto it. What does that tell us? That tells us that is directly connected to the first. That loving your neighbor as yourself is a direct reflection of our love for God. That it is an outgrowth of the fact that we love God. And is a natural progression that comes from that very thinking. Now, to say, well, I love my neighbor as myself, that's an easy statement to kind of breeze over. If we're not careful. We don't, and, we're, and it's easy to kind of skip over the magnitude of what is being said here. That means it says, love your neighbor, whoever that might be. Just as much as you love yourself. In other words, you see to their own knees. You see to theirs. You make sure that you're fed. You help make sure that they are fed as well. To love your neighbor as yourself is to be just as concerned about their well-being as you are with your own. 
Now, this really only applies to the people that we like, right? Only the people that are friends and, you know, that we hang out with, perhaps. No, of course not. Because note that this, that the Lord interprets our perception of others as a, as a measure of our love for him. In other words, God sees how we look at other people as a scale of how we, much we love him. And we see this in 1 John 4.20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is what? He is a liar. That's pretty strong language. He is a liar, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath, not, hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? God uses some pretty powerful words here to express how important it is for us to show love towards our brother. If it's true that we love him, the expectation would be very, very straightforward. We cannot truly love God as he commands us with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, if we hold within us a hatred or a disdain for other people. The two are not compatible. Now, we pay lip service all we want. Oh, I love God. But if our lives don't reflect it, what did God say we are? A liar. That's pretty, pretty blunt. Now, once again, we know that just applies to those we like, right? No, we know that's not the truth. Scriptures tells us very clearly that God himself is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. That is directly out of God's word. What does that mean, though? God's not a respecter of persons, okay? So he's not a respecter of persons. What exactly, where does, it, where does that take us? That means in order for us to be obedient to God's commandments, we are to love all people. All people, races, religions, backgrounds. Now, does that mean we accept everyone's view of God? No. Obviously, if they have a misguided interpretation of who God is or a misguided practice of, of uh, pursuit of who they call God, then obviously we aren't just to embrace that reality or their reality. If they have a misguided view of morality, does that mean we accept their morality? No, obviously not. We're not accepting their viewpoints. We're accepting them. But even if they've fallen prey to the lies of Satan, even if they're misguided in their, their, their practice of faith, even if they're misguided in their practice of moralities, we are to love them. In fact, for that very reason, we should be trying to reach them all the more so that they might find the love of the one true God and find the real scale of morality in God's word. I heard an expression one time years ago in a sermon that I don't even remember where it was preached. But the whole theme of the sermon was to love them to the cross. I thought, what an awesome concept that is. Love them to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Lead them by your treatment of them straight to the cross of Christ. In fact, to be a respecter of persons, it says in scriptures, is prejudice. Is prejudice towards anyone for any reason is a sin. We see this in James. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Do you see that? There's that expression again, respect to persons. Meaning favoring somebody over another person for whatever reason. The Bible calls that sin. The love of God is evident in us in how we perceive others. The second, the second piece of this is that love of God is demonstrated to us as unconditional. Now how do we show that? Well, it's evident in our perception of Him. The love of God is evident in us in our perception of Him. How exactly do you perceive God? How do you see God? Is He some lofty tyrant that makes all these rules that we have to live by and gets angry whenever we don't? Is he a spirit being that just controls the universe and keeps everything <clears throat> going as if he's leading some intergalactic orchestra? Or is he your Lord? Is he your God? And I emphasize the word your in that statement because that's a key component of how you should perceive him. God desires to have with us a close, personal Relationship, And that means individual. That means not a collective, a corporate type of relationship where he just, yeah, everybody's my people. He wants an individual relationship with each one of us. He desires to be our Heavenly Father. But how we perceive him, even if we have declared him Lord and Savior of our life, is demonstrated how we live our lives for him. Well, how do we do this? How do we demonstrate we're living our lives for the Lord? Well, first of all, we see Jesus telling his disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's pretty straightforward. If you love me, keep my commandments. There's a word for that. It's called obedience. Obedience. Kids, when you want to show you love for your parents, you do what they say, right? You do what you're supposed to, and that is a way of demonstrating your love for them. So it is with our Father in Heaven. We desire, we yearn to do what He commands of us because we love Him. Not because we're afraid of being punished. Not because we're afraid of the consequences. No, we should be doing these things because of our love for Him. It's not like we're trying to earn brownie points. But rather, this is an expression of our feelings for Him. That we want to please Him. Now, this isn't just simply obeying the do's and don'ts that are in the Bible. This applies also to how we serve Him. How we follow his will for our lives. To fulfill and to glorify him through that. 
A Christian who has given his life to Christ, we are told to deny self and pick up our cross daily. Meaning we are to put our own desires, our own will aside and say, I'm done with that. I want to do his desire. I want to do his will every single day. And it is a battle that we struggle with every single day. Because our flesh is going to say, I want to do this, I want to do that. And oftentimes it's going to be in conflict with what God is saying for us to do. And oftentimes that means we must sacrifice what are our old selfish desires. That's what it means to deny self. It means to put God above all that we may desire. Now we know that there are certain necessities of life in the world we live in. You know, we've got to go to work. We've got to take care of our households. But it doesn't mean that we can't serve him in those same capacities. That doesn't mean those aren't opportunities to yet serve him and more so glorify him in how we do it. Whether it be witnessing to somebody about Christ or making his name known some other way. Our day-to-day -day schedules provide us with so many opportunities to be about his work. If we would just take the time to look for him. To seek him. So what we're saying here is that if we love God and as we say we do, then that love will drive us to live for him at every turn. In every way that we can. It'll motivate us to serve him. However, whatever, wherever possible. <clears throat> we perceive him as our loving heavenly father. And we desire. We desire to please him with our obedience. Not because we're afraid that he might punish us. And that's key. And that it shouldn't matter how things are going at the time. Now that's, you know, our, our desire to be obedient it shouldn't wait, you know, go back and forth with, well, things are going good. Man, I want to serve God. Things aren't going so good. God, why are you doing this to me? I'm not going to serve you. Our, our, it shouldn't wax and wane like that. It shouldn't go back and forth. It should be inconsequential what is going on in our lives at the time we should look for opportunities as that circumstance is a meaning a waste a means to to serve God to glorify God we love our Heavenly Father through obedience in the good times and the bad in fact the reality is when we follow in obedience in the darkest times of our lives I think the love of God is demonstrated all the more louder we love him and we see him as wonderful, benevolent God that he is, even when we struggle. And when we do this, we're showing this to others and demonstrating the unconditional love of God. So we see that the love of God is evident in our perception of him as well. The third and last piece of this is that the love of God has demonstrated us and that is unmerited. And what does that mean? Well, the love of God is evident in our perception of ourselves. You know, we live in a world today that is going to tell us that we should be looking out for number one. It's all about us. 
go for the gusto or whatever the latest, I don't even know what the latest slang terms are. I mean, looking out for number one, I'm kind of dating myself. That goes back to the 70s. But we're told that it's all about us. Everything we see on TV, everything we see is all about making our way, doing it our way, making it better for us. Self-help books, get-rich schemes. They all do a booming business today. Because people want it. It's all about them. In fact, these what's-in-it-for-me attitudes have even bled over into the Christian communities. There's a cancer growing in our churches in America and throughout the world today that has caused religion to become incredibly self-centered. You go to churches today, oftentimes you'll see that it, the church is centered around that person and what they can get out of it and, and what it's all about them and, and it's done to make them feel good and they can be prosperous and blah, yada, yada, whatever. But it's not about us. It's not about us. They believe it teaches us that God's blessings are there for the taking. All we have to do is just claim it. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about that concept. You ever taken anything to dry cleaners or pick something up from baggage claim at an airport or something? What does it mean to claim it? It means to say, this is rightfully mine and I want it. So tell me something. Should we be telling God, God, your blessings are rightfully mine and I want them now? I would think not. In fact, who are we to demand anything of God? Now, while it is true that God does desire to pour his blessings upon us, he does take great pleasure in doing so. It is at his discretion when, he, when and if he does that. I don't know about you, but my Bible teaches me that it is not about what I demand of God, but rather what God expects of me. You might say, well, I'm saved. I'm a child of God. Well, that's truly something to be comforted by, but not to be arrogant about. So how exactly should we see ourselves? How should we perceive ourselves when we examine ourselves? Well, once again, let's go back to God's Word and see what it says. And we see a good example of this in Luke 18, 10 through 14. Two men, and men went up into the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus by, with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possessed. And the publican, standing far off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down into his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, I don't think any of us would be so bold as to stand up in church and begin to pray and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like Joe over here, who does this, that, and the other thing. I don't think any would be so bold as to do that. But... Do we ever kind of get this mindset that, well, I'm a child of God, 
I'm saved and these people are not and kind of get a little bit of an arrogant I guess attitude about it and look down on people because of that or maybe we don't do it in words or thoughts necessarily but it is reflected in our actions maybe we look down on others who've rejected God who, who don't want anything to do with, with God's offer of salvation Beyond that, and more importantly, the purpose of the story that Jesus told was to point out an attitude. Maybe not necessarily the actions, but the attitudes. And we've got to remember something. Every one of us, even if we're saved, we still are sinners. We are sinners. Romans 3.10 or 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice it doesn't say until you're saved. Even after we're saved, we still fall short. We are no less in need of the grace and forgiveness of God after we're saved than before. In fact, we're more, more, more less with uh, we even have less of an excuse after we're saved because we know better for sure. We are still sinners. Well, you say, well, but I go to church. I try to do good. I, I tithe. I do this. I do that. I, do, I try to help the poor. Well, this is reflected in Romans 3.10 as it is written, that is none righteous, no, not one. It doesn't matter what you do. We are still seen as unrighteous because of our sin. And this is where we get this disconnect on people who think that they're going to find their salvation through their works. Because the works are detached from their sin. The sin is something that has a punishment of death. And the works have no impact whatsoever on that sin. It doesn't matter how, quote, righteous you try to be. Your sin still is not dealt with. And this is the problem with us and God. This is the barrier between us and God. It is our sin that creates this disconnect, this creates this, this enmity with God. I don't care how many good works you do. If you are a sinner unforgiven by God, you are his enemy. We are unrighteous. But I try to live a righteous life, you might say. Well, to that I point you to Isaiah. But we are all us an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What we see as good works, and we see as trying to do good and everything, we stand before God and try to present that as righteousness. He sees that as what? Filthy rags. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Our righteousness cannot stand in the judgment of God. We are all sinners. And the Bible tells us there's a penalty for that. Penalty is death, eternal separation from God. In a place of torment forever and ever. You ever think about that for a second? After a million years of suffering, the people in hell, as part of their torment, recognize that there is no, they haven't even begun to get to the end because there isn't one. 
we are unrighteous. But so how do then we manage to come to God in such a way that we can enter into the gates of heaven? Well, see, that's where Jesus was necessary. Because when we are saved, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he imparts his righteousness upon us. So when we are standing before God in judgment, it's not our righteousness that God sees and says, okay, you're good enough. No, it's Jesus who steps in and says, it is my righteousness, my grace that has covered this individual. And we are accepted on the merits of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. That's why it is imperative that we understand that Jesus Christ is the only avenue by which we can reach God. He is the only way that we can be reunited with God and bring about the reconciliation that sin has destroyed. And it's very simple how this happens. It's so easy that a child can understand it. If we confess our sins before God, recognize we are a sinner. I have nothing to offer God. I'm, I'm, I'm unrighteous. I, I'm, my unrighteousness is as filthy rags. But I recognize that Jesus Christ has paid a price that I was supposed to pay for my sin. I recognize that he has suffered for the sin that I have committed. God has poured his wrath out on him. He died on the cross for my sins, rose again three days later. And then when that occurs, when we accept that in our hearts, then we also are imparted the righteousness of Christ so that then the day comes of judgment, we stand before God, not alone and with nothing, but rather with Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are welcomed in to the gates of heaven. So the question is, is, do we live our lives reflecting the love of God so that others can see these kinds of things with us? Or do we live our lives self-centered, wrapped around our own beings, our own existence, unwilling to reach out to others, unwilling to live lives that draw them to Jesus Christ? We don't want to glorify ourselves. We don't want people looking at us saying, oh, what a wonderful person that person is. No, that's not the point. The point is they want, I want them, we should want them to see us and in us see the love of God. And in so be drawn to Jesus Christ. So we need to look at our lives and say, are we reflecting the love of God? And the truth is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, that's not even possible. You can't be reflecting the love of God if you don't know who he is. So if you've never accepted him before today, why not? Why not make that choice today? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne today. We are thankful that we have had this time together. Lord, we thank you for your, your love and for your word, the direction that it gives us in our lives. Lord, we just ask that you continue to burden our hearts with any area of our life, perhaps that we have not given over to you, any area of our life that we retain selfishly, Lord. Help us to, to, to give up on that, Lord, to just give it over to you. And Lord, help us to see every avenue of our lives as an opportunity to glorify you, to, to point others to you, that they might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And Lord, as we live our lives, help us to continue to seek opportunities to share the gospel with others uh, in this lost and dying world as our time appears to be drawing to, uh, uh, to, to an end, Lord. We, we know that the time is short. We know that your return is imminent. <clears throat> Lord, just help us to respond accordingly and uh, understand the urgency of the time that we live in, Lord. And Lord, we love you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space Hyphen Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.